years and years ago, I was leading the Alston CG. Any Alston CGers out there still? No, they're all gone. <laughs> they're not gone. They, they went to go plant Cove Brighton, right? So I was leading the Alston CG years and years and years ago, and we would start every single CG, everyone, even the ones where we just socialized, by doing high, low, aha. High, what's your, what's your high of the week, kind of the best thing that happened? Low, what's like the worst part of the week that happened? And aha, like what's something you've learned? And some people loved it. Most people hated it. Um, even after I got some feedback, I just kept doing it. I don't know. It probably wasn't a great idea. Um, but the, the, the goal behind the aha moment was just to share something that you kind of learned that week, right? Whether it was um, something you learned that was just kind of illuminating, whether it was maybe a skill that you've been working on developing and it kind of clicked, or maybe it was something deeper, a little more spiritual. And really the goal behind it was to be that deeper spiritual reflection to kind of force people to ask the question, like, what is God doing in my life? Or what is God trying to show me? What is God trying to reveal to me? And it was, it was really supposed to be like an aha moment, like things like click. And even outside of like Christianity, outside of like religious things, everyone loves a good aha moment, right? Whether it's movies or books or, or something in your life, you can probably think of some good ones, right? Whether it's Fight Club, Harry Potter, uh, Inception, or the best written one, uh, Lizzie and Mr. Darcy, anyone? Yeah, yeah, come on, Pride and Prejudice, great writing, all right? Make fun of me all you want, it's fantastic writing. It's a great aha moment. And yes, good storytelling comes into play, and, and yes, some sort of like plot tension and, and build up, but more than that, we love aha moments because at the end of the day, we want things to make sense. Right? We want there to be an explanation or reason for kind of the chaos of what just happened in the previous scene or the previous part of the book or the part of our lives. Right? Aha moments bring some sort of level of like comfort. Right, some sense they give a good reason for what previously happened, whether it's good or bad. And so for us, in our story with Joseph in Genesis, we get in these chapters a very upfront, up close, aha type of moment. Right, God in a, a beautiful way, he kind of pulls back the veil in a way that we don't see too often in scripture and we don't see too often in our own lives, but he pulls back the veil and, and provides like really concrete reasons as to why terrible things have happened to Joseph, right? In his lifetime and why Joseph has had a lifetime of suffering up to this point. Joseph, if you've been tracking with us, he's, he's uh, been in some dark places, right? He's been thrown into a pit and betrayed by his brothers. He's been sold into slavery. And as we learned about last week, he was wrongly accused of trying to sleep with Potiphar's wife and then subsequently thrown into jail. And it sort of just like ended like that, right? Like the end of last week's sermon, the end of last week's text, it was like there was no aha moment, no understanding on our end, no understanding on Joseph's end as to why these things were happening. I want to add sometimes, sometimes God does leave it like that. All right, part of what we talked about last week was, was trusting and valuing the presence of God more than the answers of God. Trusting and valuing the aha moments that uh, don't necessarily, sorry, trusting and valuing that, that God is with you despite the lack of aha moments. Sometimes God does do that. But other times God does give us answers. Other times, God does kind of pull back the curtain and show the inner workings of his plan that have been there all along. And he does just that in our story today. 
Right? He shows Joseph with crystal clarity why he went through what he went through. And so as we read 40 and 41, as far as we work through it, we're not going to read all of it. It's almost 100 verses. You, you start to connect the dots, and, and, and all of a sudden it becomes clear, like, oh, like that's why that happened. All right, that's why God pulled that string and did that and did that and orchestrated that. All right, so as we look at these chapters, our, our big point, kind of main takeaway for today is, is this. Is with God, your suffering becomes preparation and your deliverance becomes a blessing for others. That's a bit of a mouthful for a main point, I know. With God, your suffering becomes preparation and your deliverance becomes a blessing for others. We'll work through two things. It's just right there in, in the main point. The first one, with God, your suffering becomes preparation. And the second one, with God, your deliverance becomes a blessing. So first, with God, your suffering becomes preparation. We're spending most of our time in 41 today. Um, so let me just summarize 40 very briefly for you. Um, Joseph, you remember, he's in charge of the prison at this point. Right? And two people who directly report to Pharaoh, who are kind of in Pharaoh's office and, and work for Pharaoh, they find themselves in prison because of some offense they did against Pharaoh. We aren't told what they did. Some commentators think like maybe it was some sort of like possible poison attempt. Um, but they're thrown into jail. And they both have really crazy but similar dreams. Really crazy but similar dreams. And back then in that day, uh, if, if you had a dream, there were a ton of dream interpreters around Egypt. Like it was a common theme that, that, that if you had a dream and it was just kind of wacko, like it probably meant something. And you should probably go see if someone can interpret that. But these two people, they're in jail. And so there's no interpreters around. But Joseph, kind of being right place, right time, um, overhears kind of what they're saying. He kind of inquires like, why, why do you look so sad? And they're like, well, we had these crazy dreams and there's no one here to interpret them for us. And um, he just kind of says, don't all interpretations belong to God? And he proceeds to interpret the dreams for them. Uh, and so one of the dreamers, um, who's, I think he was the cupbearer for, for Pharaoh, he dreams that um, you will be restored to your office with Pharaoh and all things will be well. Um, and the other one, he says, uh, you will be killed. And so his interpretations uh, come true. And, and he Joseph slides across the table to the cupbearer who's returned to his office with Pharaoh. He says, hey, don't forget about me in front of Pharaoh. Remember me. In other words, get me out of here. Right? Like after you kind of return to your position of prominence, after you're kind of in the good graces with Pharaoh again, remember me. Remember how I helped you. Remember where I am still stuck in this prison. In other words, get me out of here. Before he had entered the solemn note, it says that this man did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And then he was in the prison, the text says, for two whole years. And uh, the way it's constructed in Hebrew and even in the English, you can kind of tell, like, it's, it's not just trying to convey the passing of time. It's trying to convey an emotion with that. Another way you could translate that is two whole years worth of days. It was a long and miserable time for Joseph. Till eventually... This man that was restored to, to, to Pharaoh's office remembered Joseph when Pharaoh had a dream that no one could interpret. He says, oh, aha, I remember in the prison there was a man who interpreted my dream. And so Joseph, he's brought forward to, to Pharaoh and he rightly interprets Pharaoh's dream and essentially says, like we just read, there is a famine coming and we need to plan for it. And so um, since Joseph interpreted this rightly, um, Pharaoh sensed some wisdom. Pharaoh sensed the spirit of God on Joseph. And so Pharaoh chooses Joseph to kind of oversee the operations for planning that. And he empowers Joseph and puts Joseph in a position of power. 
And so, considering all of this, kind of backtracking a little bit, even though it ends on a bright note, we still look at Joseph's life on the whole, and it's marked by suffering. If one word kind of sums up 90% of Joseph's life, it's suffering. But in this case, Joseph gets clarity. He gets an answer, and he's shown that his suffering was actually preparation. God was using Joseph's suffering for preparation for where he was going to be when he was set free. Right? And Joseph couldn't have known this in the middle of all that was happening. Right? If he had a million guesses as to where the pit would end up, he would have never guessed by Pharaoh's side. He would have never guessed that he went from pit to slavery to Potiphar's house to prison to Pharaoh. Like that would, have, would not have computed. Right? So eventually, logistically manage the whole country's food to be second in charge right by Pharaoh. Like I just imagine Joseph thrown into this pit. There's kind of dirt all over him. Maybe it's dark and he's just kind of processing like this betrayal that just happened. And he's eventually lifted out of the pit. If you remember a few weeks ago, all this happened. And so maybe he's like, okay, this was just a prank gone too far. But then he's sold into slavery. And maybe he's, um, you know, just kind of by himself. Like we just kind of peer down and we're like, don't worry, bro. This is preparing you. Like, is that helpful? No. Joseph can't comprehend that in that moment. I have to imagine the only thing he's thinking is like, why? Like, what will come of this? Where, where will I be taken? God, what are, you, what are you doing? And some of you surely have felt something like that, whether it's recent or years ago. You're in your own metaphorical pit and you're like, what? Maybe you had someone who came and meant the best but gave you bad advice and was like, don't worry, bro. God's preparing you. And like, we know that's true, but that's cold comfort. Like, Joseph wouldn't believe us. And here's the thing, though. God didn't want Joseph to comprehend his suffering. God didn't want Joseph to comprehend the complexities of his suffering. He wanted Joseph to trust him. Now, I know it's hard for us to hear that, but at times, God has that exact same posture with us. Sometimes, God doesn't want you to comprehend your suffering. He just wants you to trust him. Which, side note, everyone in this room is suffering in some way, shape, or form. Some are just more obvious than others. Some are just more aware of it. Michael Emlett, I've mentioned this book before. He has a book called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners, and It's a counseling book, but it kind of just picks at this idea that at all times you are those three things, a saint, a sufferer, and a sinner. There's reality here that if you're here and you're in Christ, by virtue of being a Christian, you are suffering. By virtue of being a Christian, Scripture tells us, and you don't have to be overly religious to believe this either, that the world is not what it's supposed to be. You don't have to be close to religious to feel like that's true. You don't have to be overly religious to feel like your body, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, doesn't work the way it's supposed to. You don't have to be Christian to think that the way you treat other people and the way you are treated is not the way it's supposed to go. If that doesn't resonate with you, just wait till you turn 30. Just kidding. But if that doesn't resonate with you, as kind of doom and gloom as it sounds, without a doubt, at some point, you will suffer greatly. 
family members will die. Children will walk away from the faith. Cancer will come out of nowhere. Disaster will strike the city. You'll lose a child. These things will happen. And so, if this inevitable part of, inevitable part of life is just barreling towards us, Christian and non-Christian alike, what do we do about it? Right? It, it, do we just kind of buckle up, hope for the least amount of carnage, the least amount of disaster? Do we just kind of endure and just shrug our shoulders and it is what it is? Interestingly, look at how other religions and philosophies deal with this. Islam would say, generally speaking, generally speaking, Islam would say, consider the sins you've committed against God. Maybe that's why you're suffering. And so to rid yourself of suffering, live a good and pleasing life to God. Okay, well, that's not too far off from like what scripture would say. All right, what about Buddhism? Again, very generally says that we suffer because of ignorance. Or, or an inaccurate perception of reality, or an unhealthy attachment to things and people. Sounds, well, sounds pretty close to biblical, right? There's definitely parts of that that are true. And so to rid yourself of suffering, you must rid yourself of the desire and need for other people and relationships and these things. Or any number of like philosophical views that aren't even necessarily religious. One Swiss philosopher said, the art of living is making use of suffering. Okay, so in other words, it seems like suffering is inevitable, but the way you deal with it is you figure out how to make good use of it. Both Christianity, we see something totally different. Yes, we see bits and pieces of, of some of those things. We do see that the, the universal reality of suffering is inescapable. But it's super interesting that we get an invitation into suffering as Christians. Right, Jesus invites us into suffering. He says what? Take up your cross and follow him. In other words, take up suffering and follow me. This is unique to Christianity. Right, unlike most other views and philosophies that say kind of avoid this at all costs, Christianity almost says like, it almost seems like it's saying lean into it or embrace it. Or even in some parts of the Bible, it almost seems like it's saying Desire it? And what's even more unique about this, it's not just the invitation itself, but it's the fact that you are invited into suffering that God uses, not you. This is the huge difference. Right, you notice when I was just suffering, just, uh, uh, saying all those other religions and the way they dealt with suffering, did you notice that it was you that was kind of fixing the problem? That you had to rid yourself of these things and you had to do this and you had to do that? The kicker with Christianity is that God is the one that does something with our suffering. Doesn't mean we have no role to play. Like no doubt, some of the decisions we've made in this room contribute to the suffering in our own lives, but it's ultimately God is the one who uses that suffering. And honestly, thank God that it's not ultimately on us. Right? We have a higher being with higher purposes and higher ways than we can even come close to fathoming. I want him in charge of redefining and kind of repurposing my suffering. I want him in charge of uh, guiding that path. 
And there are examples of him doing this all over scripture. Obviously, the one we're in right now with Joseph. But more than any of these, think about the cross. Right, Jesus on the cross, there's no worse suffering in history. Yet, there is no greater purpose in history. No other time has there been such a great amount of darkness, but such a great amount of light and hope. God, in that moment, defines suffering. Right, That one man experiencing separation and punishment from God so we can experience goodness and mercy. One man who experienced great suffering so we could experience great salvation. I want to make a distinction, too. It's not that God is kind of necessarily always like behind the scenes setting up suffering so that you will suffer uh, for this or that. No, he's using the inevitable suffering. That's an important distinction. It's not to say that God doesn't at times kind of coordinate some sort of suffering for us to see something or to bring about some greater purpose. But what we often see in scripture is more so God using suffering. It's where the language used in Romans 8.28 is extremely important. Some of you, you might know this verse, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Notice it doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. Rather, God is working out all things for good. In other words, everything that is bad, God makes good. Tim Keller, he has a good book on suffering called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and he says it really well. He sums it up like this. Suffering, then, actually can use evil against itself. It can thwart the destructive purposes of evil and bring light and life out of darkness and death. And when you fill in the context of what else is happening in that chapter, in that paragraph, it's, he's making the argument that God is the one using the suffering. God uses suffering to turn evil against itself. The chapter, chapter 41, ends on a really sweet note with Joseph kind of seeing and receiving all of God's goodness. He gets married. He has kids. And he says this. It says, God has made me forget all of my hardship in all of my father's house. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. For God has made me fruitful in my suffering. In other words, Joseph is saying, God has redefined my suffering. And now all I see is goodness and blessing. And Joseph, he ends his time in our passage with a lot of blessings. Right? He's been delivered from the prison. The second thing I want to look at briefly is, is the fact that this deliverance is used for the good of others. And so our second point is this. With God, your deliverance becomes a blessing for others. With God, your deliverance becomes a blessing for others. You can kind of fill in the blank with the word deliverance. It could be very generically talking about your salvation. With God, your salvation is used for the blessing of others. Or it could be deliverance from a particular circumstance. Or it could be the blessings that you've been given. Notice the one thing God doesn't do, he doesn't bring Joseph out of suffering so that Joseph could then go enjoy life easily. Right? God doesn't save Joseph so he can just live a simple life that only involves himself, his family, and God in the white picket fence house. 
No, God saves Joseph. God delivers Joseph from prison so that he can go and bless others. We'll cover this in, in a few weeks, but or I think it's next week, but spoiler alert, Joseph, he gets reunited with his brothers 20 to 30 years later after they throw him in a pit, and this is what he says to them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. In other words, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So everything we kind of just talked about, with God's suffering becomes purposeful, with God's suffering becomes preparation. But the second half, God meant suffering for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. In other words, God used Joseph's life of suffering to bless others. God delivered Joseph so he could bless others. And guys, to be honest, like this week, this, this question just kept kind of raining down on me. Do I think about my salvation that way? Do you think about your salvation that way? Do you think about your blessings that way? Or is it all for you? And the things that you then choose to do with ease. In other words, God has saved you for a reason. And yes, don't get me wrong, it's because he loves you greatly. It's because you are the apple of his eye, without a doubt. And it's because in Christ, you are worth everything to the Lord. But it's not just for you. Yet so many of us, myself included, in this room, we think like that. So many of us in this room, we pray like that. So many of us, we organize our lives around that, around ourselves. We fail to realize that God has given us life in the first place so that he can use it for his plans. And so often we tend to conveniently forget that his plans involve other people. People that maybe you don't like. People that maybe you don't get along with. God has you where he has you for a reason, and it's not just for self-gain, but for the good of others. What do I mean by that? Very, very practically, God has brought you to Boston for a reason. Right? Maybe God brought you to Boston not just so you can finish your program and leave, but so that you could stay and influence the city for good. So that even in the middle of transience, you could plant roots and develop a community of people around you and share the good news of Jesus to this city, which so desperately needs people to do that. And all of you know, the need is still there, but there are a lot of people at COA that have made that decision. Who are planting roots and saying, this is my city. I am gonna own the spiritual lostness that pervades this city. And I'm gonna be here for God to use me. I'm gonna be here so that I can bless others. Like, what if your job isn't just about you? What if the home you bought isn't just for you? What if the family that the Lord has blessed you with is meant to be used for the good of others? What if the reason you moved up to Boston goes beyond your thinking? Right, like it's honestly foolish of us to think that by the grace of God, you got into a PhD program just to move up to here and academically increase your knowledge. But right, that's a small view of God. 
and a self-centered view of what you're up here to do. God has brought you to Boston for a reason, to bless others. And more than that, God has certainly brought you to this church if you're here and you're committed. Right in Koa, though we're an imperfect church with imperfect people, God has brought you here for a reason. God has called you to this church for a reason. And so that it's, it's so that through this church, you can be a blessing to others. Right, we should all say, yes, God has brought me to this city and, and brought me to this church. Yes, as a blessing for me to enjoy. Enjoy the good things and the good fruit of that. But it's also a blessing for me to extend to others. And so we should see things like the big move or volunteering with Brookline Housing Authority or just welcoming people in the fall, not as a simple duty that comes with church membership, but rather as a way to extend blessing to other people. Right? We should see things like the month of prayer, which is coming up in August. Yes, as a way to pray for our church. Yes, as a way for you to pray for your own life and your own family, but also to get ready for all the people that God brings in the fall. Not as, so we can just conveniently absorb them into our church, but so that we can stretch beyond what we are comfortable doing and welcome those people in the name of the Lord. You've been blessed with community. You've been blessed with hospitality by COA. Good, go and do that for others. Don't just selfishly soak in that blessing and keep it all to yourself. I'm getting a little heated, sorry. I'm, I'm truly preaching to myself just as much. I, I should add, there are also times and seasons where you do need to, to, to slow down. There are times and seasons where maybe you need to stop pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, and you need to let other people pour into you. But when it's been like that for five years straight, But think about this. When you choose not to, you're not just not participating in the things God is doing at this church. You're depriving other people. You who have been here for 10 plus years, have lifelong relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, you were once new at this church too. And it's likely because someone chose to extend the blessings they received to you that you then were invited. You then have what you have now. That's what God did with Joseph. He blessed Joseph so that he could go and bless others. In so many ways. It's interesting, did you notice too, like side note, the logistical skills and management skills he got while managing Potiphar's house, while managing the prison, are then used to manage the country. God used those blessings and those skills that he gave Joseph to bless other people. Wasn't so Joseph could then just go and kind of live a comfy life with, with Pharaoh. No, he gave him those skills. He blessed him with those things so that he could go and then use them for the good of other people. And the story, it ends with Joseph essentially saving a whole country from famine. 
with the gifts and skills and talents and blessings that God gave him. The blessings of God on Joseph's life didn't end with Joseph. Yet it's funny how we so often think the blessings of God terminate on us. Friends, our natural disposition should be, I have given much, now how can I give much? I have been blessed, so how can I bless others? God has saved me, how can I come alongside him as he saves others? Joseph used his blessings for the good of other people. So I wanna close by thinking about this, just two questions. Two questions, take it home, chew on it, talk about it. In what way have you been blessed that you are not using to bless others? In what way have you been served and blessed that you are not serving and blessing the church? Joseph used his blessing for others. And as we've been trying to remind everyone too, as we go along in Genesis, it's easy to forget about Jesus in the background of all of this. But we said last week that Joseph is a type of Jesus. And what that means is that Joseph, in many ways, reflects who and what Jesus will be to his people. And there is no doubt, Jesus, his gifts, his talents, his blessings, his perfection, his death and his resurrection is a gift to his people. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus gave himself up entirely for us. Every ounce of his ministry, every ounce of his life, every ounce of everything he had is given up for us. It's interesting, read the Gospels and look for any notion of self-preservation in Jesus. It's not there. Any selfish self-preservation He still naps, still eats, still does things that help him rely on God. But any notion of I wanna keep what's mine as mine does not exist in him. He gave himself for us, yes, in his perfect life, but also in his death on the cross. As we transition to communion, this is what we remember. This is what this symbolizes. Is Jesus' body broken for us Jesus' blood spilled for us. His closeness, his intimacy with God given to us through his sacrifice. And so as we take the cup, as we take the bread, remember that. Remember that Jesus has blessed you eternally with his life and his death and his resurrection. At any point of the next song, um, you can just come up. There'll be stations in the corners of, of, of the elements. Go ahead and take them. Go back to your seat and take it whenever you feel comfortable. Um, this is one part of the service we say, this is reserved for Christians who do believe in the life, death, and resurrections, resurrection of Jesus. And so if you aren't a Christian, I would just encourage you to just stay in your seat and consider what it means to take in the, these blessings that God has for you in Christ. Also, if you're here and, and whether it's something about suffering in Joseph's life or something about the way Joseph blessed people that really strikes a nerve with you, I wanna encourage you every single week, 
We have people on the side of the auditorium who are ready to pray with you, who are ready to talk with you, who want to extend the blessings they've received to you. So I'd encourage you, go talk to them. Allow someone to pray for you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for you. We are thankful that you are infinitely powerful. So powerful that you turn evil to good, that you cause suffering to become purposeful, to become preparation, God, to be used for your good and your purposes. We praise you that you bless us abundantly so that we can go and bless others. God, convict us all of where we're not doing that. Help us to be grateful for where others are doing that for us. Lord, help us to look more and more like you. You know, you pray and ask these things, amen.